Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I'm an elder candidate at the church. Uh, honored to be preaching this morning. Honored to be giving uh, Pastor Chris uh, a week off from preaching. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and give you a few disclaimers before I preach. We're going to be talking about prayer to the Father, and there's a few things I want to say before we begin. One is we are not going to exhaust the topic of prayer this morning. It is, I believe, an inexhaustible topic. It has a, it's a well with no end, and that's part of the beauty of prayer. Um, along with that, though, is that we're going to be talking about the, Father's, the Lord's Prayer, and praying to the Father. And uh, we are not going to exhaust the Lord's prayer. It is the prayer of all prayers. And so uh, we're going to do a drive-by of it is what I'm going to do. My hope for us this morning, Mercy Fellowship, is that me, along with the power of the Holy Spirit, would stir your affections in prayer to the Father. I think it's a beautiful thing and something we can definitely learn from. Uh, just let me prime the pump, though, for you this morning. Uh, last year, I read a book called Psychology and Christianity, and the general editor for it, his name was Eric Johnson, and he went ahead and he invited five to six other people to come and talk about their best practices for psychology in Christianity. It's a really interesting book, but he starts the book with saying, hey, in the Western world, once upon a time, people used to come to church for healing, they used to come to church for spiritual healing, mental and emotional healing, perhaps even financial healing. And he says, now in our current day, though, it's quite the opposite. The flow of traffic is not towards church, but away from church. How did that happen? And so he goes ahead and he says, there was three things that were really emphasized in churches. From the 1800s to where we're at currently, American soil had birthed a lot of great evangelists. Those are people that preach the gospel and call people to faith and trust in Jesus. And he says that these great evangelists rose up and went ahead and they preached the gospel all across America and even some Western European countries as well. And then he says the result was the church took notice. The church took notice and they said, okay, the way we're going to change cultures by raising up great evangelists, preaching the gospel, that's how we're going to do it. So the church then emphasized three things. It emphasized being able to um, go ahead and answer social questions from a Christian worldview. Another thing it emphasized was doctrine, knowing your doctrine. And then a third thing was evangelism. All good things, all things of which we would say yes and amen to. It manifested itself in very strange ways. If you grew up in church, you might have gotten asked the question, someone would come up to you and they say, hey brother, hey sister, how many souls have you saved recently? And the last time I checked, I think Jesus does that. I don't think that's what I do. Uh, if you grew up going to youth ministry, what would have happened is that you would have been invited into an auditorium and packed in there like sardines with other youth kids. You would have been whipped up emotionally, and then you would have been told to call five people and tell them about Jesus. Just really weird ways this manifested itself. And so where are we at now? What is the result of this? Well, the result is this. A lot of people actually did meet Jesus. A lot of people actually did come to know and trust in Jesus, but the idea of soul care was completely untouched. Church really cared about you being born again, but once you were born again, it's like, hey, that's great, awesome, I'll see you when you get to heaven. Didn't really care about the individual who once they were saved was like, hey, I'm still struggling with things. Hey, I still got issues I need to work through. So, just so we're clear, when I say soul care, that's an umbrella term. There's a lot of things that are underneath that. 
Uh, as far as soul care goes, it would be counseling in a professional setting, either with someone who has devoted their life to psychology and Christ being a Christian, or with a pastor. Maybe even in a, in a personal setting between two friends where you're just sharing sins, confessing sins to one another and encouraging one another. I'd put underneath that uh, bracket, uh, underneath the umbrella of soul care, I would go ahead and put Sabbath as well. Not just a day off from work, but actual rest where you're worshiping the Lord in that time. And then underneath this category of soul care, I want to put prayer for us this morning. I want you to look at this quote from Timothy Keller. It is talks so perfectly about what we're going to talk about today. He says, Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things He has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God, prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. If you heard that rightly, then I think the reality for us is this. We need to pray. Amen? We need to pray. And I understand this about prayer. Prayer is difficult. It's hard. It is rightly in the category of being a discipline. Uh, but if I can encourage you with this, uh, there's a lot of things in life that are easy to do and they're not great. It is the great things in life that take work, that take practice, that take discipline. And if that's true about prayer, then prayer must be one of the greatest things of which we can devote our life to. Prayer is the means by which we are conformed to God's will, not having God conform to our will through our requests. Prayer is the place where we are slowed down, we are stripped of all of our titles that we clothe ourselves in and hide behind. We're made still, and completely naked before God in prayer so that we might share in communion with Him. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today, starting in verse 5. And just as you're opening up there, here's the context for where we're at. Uh, Jesus is preaching from the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sermon of all sermons, and He's going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer of all prayers but the idea of the Sermon of the Mount is this. Hey, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are now a part of a citizen of a kingdom of heaven. And if you are a citizen of that kingdom, there are certain ways of which the citizens act and behave, move, and have their being. So, go ahead and look at it, starting in verse 5. And that's where we're going to begin. 5 through 8, Jesus says, And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for their fa your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus here, He's presenting two groups of people for us this morning. It is the religious hypocrites and the Gentile pagans. 
And the religious, the first ones, they want to be seen by others. That's what they're known for. Even just a few verses before what we read, Jesus talks about giving to those that are in need. And he says of the Pharisees, these are people that when they go into the streets to give to the needy, they blow a trumpet first so that people would stop in their steps, look to see what, just was, what that sound was, and then the Pharisees would go ahead and they'd give to the needy. They wanted to be seen by people. And as they would do that with giving to people, so it was with prayer. They would stand in the synagogues, it said. It would, they would stand in the street corners as well. And then they would start to pray really loud so people could hear them. They wanted to be seen by people. Now, just so we're clear, uh, is praying in public sinful? No, there's nothing wrong with praying in public. In fact, there's actually other parts of Scripture we're encouraged to pray in public. Even this Lord's Prayer has a lot of plural language, meaning we should be praying with one another. What Jesus is getting at is this, though. What's the motive of your heart for praying? Why do you pray? Jesus says of these Pharisees, of these, uh, these uh, hypocrites, he says, truly they have received their reward. What was the reward? They wanted to be seen by men. They got it. Uh, you can think about it in this way. They weren't really praying to the Father to begin with. They were praying to men. And you say, how is that so? They wanted to draw the attention, not of God as they prayed, but they wanted to draw the attention of the men in the streets they were praying to. And that's what they did. And so Jesus says for you and for me, he says, hey, by contrast of the hypocrites, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And what's he saying here? ESV doesn't really get it right. Some of your other translations might where they say your private room. They might even say your closet. What Jesus is saying is this though. Hey, when you pray, go and find the least public spot you can and there pray to your father who is in secret and your father will see you. Now, I understand this is difficult for some of us, right? Finding a private spot to pray. Uh, if you're a stay-at-home parent, right, and you have children, I, let me just try to encourage you in a few ways. Maybe getting up five to 30 minutes before the kids get up. Put the phone aside and you just have a few quiet moments with the Father where you're able to give your day to Him. You're able to thank Him for giving you another day. If you're not a morning person, perhaps, you go ahead and do that in the evening once the kids are in bed and, and your spouse is away and you put the phone to the side and you pray. And you spend some quiet few moments in silence with the Father. If you're like me and you commute to work, uh, what I try to do, and I don't do it perfectly, uh, is that I try to about get to work about five to 30 minutes ahead of time. And so I, then I'll go ahead and I'll pull off into a side street or an empty parking lot, and it's there where I'll open my Bible, and I'll just have a few moments in the morning where I'm just telling the Father, hey, here's my day. Thank you for giving me another day. Here's what my day looks like. Please keep me safe at work. Please be with Ruth. Please help me to do the work, to do it as if I was working unto you, oh Lord. That's the idea of doing this. The whole idea of this is wherever you might find yourself in life, you would make space and time to pray. Even if you have it on your calendar and you have a block just set aside, consecrated to the Father, that is something we should all do. And so you might even be thinking, hey, why are we doing this? Why should we do this? Well, from what we read, Jesus is telling us this. Prayer is not entertainment. 
Prayer is not for the purpose of drawing us closer to man, but it is, in fact, for the purpose of drawing us closer to the Father. And Jesus gives us a promise about prayer and setting time aside to meet with the Father in prayer. He says, when you pray in private, your Father, who is in secret, will reward you and see you. It's interesting. It's as if he's saying, hey, when you go in secret and private to pray, that's where your Father is. That's where he wants to meet with you and commune with you. So the religious, the hypocrites, they pray because they want to be seen by others. We have this other group now, the pagans, the Gentiles. It says they heap up empty phrases. Other translations might say they babble. That's a fantastic word. And they do this for the purpose of wanting to be heard by whatever they are praying to. Now, you can think of people in your family, you're like, oh yeah, when they pray, they babble. You've got a mental image, perhaps, of what that might be. Along with that, though, there's also other religions that do this, right? It's not just that they use big words. It's also communicating to us this just repetitive language over and over and over and over and over and over again that somehow, some way, what they're praying out to will, in fact, hear them. So we don't babble on thinking that God will hear us. But the other thing is as well, we don't have to, and that's actually a very beautiful thing. We don't have to heap up empty, long-winded, repetitive, King James Version words and phrases thinking that by praying this way, we'll be heard. Now let me just say this too. If you grew up with the King James Version and that's how you've memorized Scripture and that's how you pray, I'm not trying to, uh, I don't know, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to say there's some people that think that God hears them if they pray in a Victorian language uh, beside me. The good news of this is that your father knows what you need before you even ask, it says. And yet he invites you to ask him. He wants to hear from you. Uh, Part of this sermon, there's a lot of research that's been done scientifically as far as prayer and the effects of prayer, and I wanted to get some for you, and there's a lot of it. But one of these I pulled up was from an article that was written in the National Review by a guy named Clay Routledge, or Routledge, I don't know how to say his last name. Forgive me for that. Uh, But he talks about prayer and the psychological benefits of prayer. And hopefully the quote will be up there on the screen. I'll go ahead and say it, though, for us. He says, researchers found that prayer is psychologically beneficial for those who perceive God as loving, but it may cause anxiety for those who view God as distant and unresponsive. Now, that's really interesting, right? Hold on to those two words for a second, distant and unresponsive. What did Jesus just tell us about the Father? Is he distant? No, no, not at all. He sees you. That's not just an external like GPS tracker that he sees you. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your being. Your father is not distant, but he sees you. Well, what about unresponsive? No, our father's not unresponsive. In fact, it says that he knows what you need before you even ask him, and yet he invites you to ask him. He invites you to, because he wants to hear from you, to answer your prayers, to answer your cries. He's not unresponsive, but very much so responsive. So we we don't pray like the religious, the, the hypocrites. We don't pray like the pagans who babble on when they pray. Jesus tells us all of this so that we might strip away any idea of being something when we come to the Father in prayer. Hear me on this, Mercy Fellowship. The Father wants the genuine you. He wants the real you. Don't come to the Father saying big words. Don't come to the Father trying to be something you're not. Let me just say this briefly. 
The word hypocrite in the New Testament, it's really interesting. It's actually the term that was used to talk about Greek actors and Greek actors who wore many masks. That should say something about us when we come to prayer, right? When we come to prayer, we wear masks. Here's the masks of my accomplishments. Here's the masks of things that I've done. Here's the masks of who I am. No, no, we strip all of those away. I want you to hear this, old, this quote from John Owen. He's an old Puritan. He's talking about ministers. Take this for yourself, though. He says, A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Man, when you come to the Father, you are stripped of the titles that you hold. You are stripped of the accomplishments that you have. When you come before the Father, can you answer the question, who are you, when all of that is taken away? Who are you before the Father in prayer? So, how are we to pray then? We are not to pray as the hypocrites. We're not to pray as the pagans. Well, Jesus tells us this in the Lord's Prayer, starting in verse 9. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. This is really interesting. We start off our prayer by recognizing the relationship we have with God. We start off by acknowledging the relationship there is and what the roles are. We have a Father in heaven, and therefore, that makes us children. Now, Jesus is just repetitive throughout the Gospels and saying, hey, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you've got to be childlike. Hey, you need to have childlike faith if you are to inherit the kingdom of God. And childlike faith and being childlike should be distinguished from being childish, okay? Uh, We're not childish. You still have responsibilities. You still have things of which God has given you to steward and steward well. So we are not childish, but we are childlike. And what does that mean then? Well, childlike means two things. We are dependent and confident when we go before the Father. What does dependent mean? Well, if I was to talk to your children and I would say, hey, are you worried about your parents' finances? No. Mom and dad, they got it figured out. Not worried about it. Hey, are you worried about your next meal you're going to get? No. Mom and dad, they've they've got it figured out. They'll provide for me. Uh, There is a dependence your children have with you. And because of that, there's a great release and a great relaxing that they are able to have because you provide for them. They're dependent upon you, but also confident. Uh, Mercy Fellowship, Ruth and I, we do not have children, but I've spent time with some of your children and in our children's ministry. And let me tell you, they're very confident in how they speak, okay? I'll give you an example. A few years ago, uh, I was doing uh, the pre-K class, and uh, I had all the children sitting on the ground, and I was sitting in the chair, and I opened up the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I was really charismatic trying to keep their attention And one of these children stands up from the back. He works his way through the group of kids sitting down, comes up to me, and he says, are you done yet? I was like, that's pretty bold. Okay, awesome. Yeah, Uh, the idea of this is confidence, right? When we come to the Father, do we have confidence to speak as what our heart is is in our heart and what's in our minds? I think so often when we come to the Father, we treat him as if he's the Queen of England. Um, Ruth and I, we've been watching The Crown, and part of that is when people go before the Queen, it's always, you will refer to her as your majesty. You have a few minutes with her. She will speak. When she's done speaking with you, she'll ring a bell. You will refer to her as your majesty. You will bow, and then you will leave. 
And it's like, whoa, I've only got a few minutes. I can only say a few things. I better say the right things. I better talk to them the right way. Not so with the Father. Might I remind you, the writer of Hebrews, he says, hey, if you're in Christ, approach the throne of grace with confidence. We have a confidence when we go before our Father. We have a dependence upon Him that He works for us. But we also need to recognize this. We come to Him as children, but we are not children in our own right. We are not born children of God. In fact, the Bible says we are children of wrath. In fact, the Bible says that we are born as sons of disobedience. The language the Bible uses for us is once we've placed our trust in Jesus, we now become adopted into the family of God. Adoption is a beautiful gospel theme. And you need to know this. All the members of the Trinity have worked towards your adoption. They have worked towards your salvation. You say, how so? I, have a, I know few people here at the church that have adopted children, and I've talked to other people, and what I hear is that one of the things that draws people away from it is the cost of it. So what was the cost of your adoption? Well, you were bought with the blood of Jesus. Peter, he says, you were ransomed. You were bought not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. All right, what's your new family resemblance, the new last name you have? Well, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit now. You now have the family look. You are now stamped with the family's name. What about the Father? What has the Father done for you? The Father has loved you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says. J.I. Packer, he said this, us as Protestants, we get really excited about the doctrine of justification, but he says really we should be excited about the doctrine of adoption. It's one thing to be pardoned by the judge of the universe. It's another thing, rightly, to be adopted by the judge of the universe and brought into his family. Adoption is a beautiful thing. Now, when we talk about the Father, though, um, we need to be careful of not putting the image of our earthly fathers upon our heavenly Father. You tracking with me, church? We don't want to do that. If you grew up with a good father, hey, praise be to God, they're a picture, but that's it. They're at best a picture of how good your heavenly father is. If you grew up with a distant dad or a bad dad or without a dad, the result is you'll view the father in heaven as someone who's distant. You'll look at the father as someone who's apathetic, perhaps even abusive, always disappointed. Some of you, you might look at the father as someone who sets high bars and is never satisfied with you even if you accomplish it or never says well done church praise be to god our father in heaven is none of those things he is none of those things we just read from jesus how close our father is to us that he sees you that he knows you your father in heaven he is in fact patient with you your Father in heaven, mercy, fellowship, he loves you. John Calvin, he said, calling upon God as Father should free us from all distrust. Do you feel that when you come to the Father in prayer? Are you free from any distrust calling upon the Father? Now we call upon this Father, but he is our Father in heaven. I always thought this was interesting. I always thought it was a way that we're just distinguishing our Father from earth as opposed to our Father from heaven. But, and that's true, but there's also another meaning to it, though. So often when we pray, right, we say, Father, and then we just go right into our problem. Father, I have this issue, and then we go right into it. 
And so I think what Jesus is doing, he's slowing us down. He's saying, no, 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 quit looking at the problem you have. Look up to heaven. Look up and see your Father who is in heaven. And when you look up, you'll see a few things. When you look up, we see our Father, and he's sitting on a throne. He's unmoved by the things of this world. He's not worried about what's going on. He is in control. When we look up and we see heaven, we see our Father, and we see that the gates of heaven are wide open. There's no threat of an enemy. The rule and reign of heaven is peace and safety. That is where our Father resides. When we read in the book of Revelation, we see in heaven that the streets are made of gold and the foundation of the kingdom is made with such fine jewels as if this world has not even known any of them. And what that communicates to us is this, that our our Father has storehouses from which He meets all of our needs. There is no lack in our Father's storehouses for us, church. He has everything that we need and more. Our Our earthly fathers, they may have hurt us, but our Heavenly Father, He wants to heal us. So it is after we behold the glory of God then that we go ahead and make our requests. And we're going to look at these three requests here. The way that the Lord's Prayer is broken up is in really the two sections. The first three requests are going to be towards the Father and towards His kingdom and towards His will. And it is after that then that we pray about us and we pray about our neighbors. And so we'll look at these first three. It's in verses 9 to 10. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This first request is a strange one, hallowed be your name. One, because we never use the word hallowed. And two, it's a weird translation because it's kind of asking that God's name would be kept holy. Are are we asking God to be holy? Is that what this is? Is he not holy already? What this communicates to us is that our Father in heaven is holy other than us. There's a familiarity with calling upon God as Father, isn't there? And so calling upon him as Father, we might think we know him well, and we know him to a degree, but don't, be, uh, don't forget, he is completely other than us. He is perfect. He is creator. We are created. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So we are addressing someone who is not like us. As we pray, may your name be kept holy, we are asking God that we, as ambassadors of God's name, would keep his name holy and pure. I want you to think about this uh, analogy for a second. Think of biker gangs, right? Wherever they travel, uh, they wear wear the leather jackets, and on the back of the leather jackets, they always have the name on their back. And that name, they are representatives of and ambassadors of. It is the same thing with us who bear the name of Jesus Christ. Wherever we go, we have the name of God on us. And so this request, Father, may your name be kept holy, is a request that all of our lives would be lived in such a way where we are keeping the name of the Father pure. How we live, how we talk, how we engage with people, uh, even in the public square, online with our thumbs. All of our life would be devoted to keeping the name of God holy. Amen. Hopefully the result of this prayer would be that as we hope and we pray to keep the name of God holy in how we live, it would permeate from amongst us and would go out of us to the greater areas of Marysville, 
in the greater area of Snohomish County, in the greater area of Washington, that people would come to recognize and realize and worship a holy God. And we move on to the other two, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. And these two requests, they really go hand in hand, and, and they have a, a sense of not only longing, uh, but lordship in them as well. Uh, the longing for the Father's kingdom to come. When we're met with hardship, when we're met with disease, when we are met with suffering, the longing we have in our being that, Father, may your kingdom come now. May you consummate the new heavens and the new earth now. I don't want to wait. Father, may your kingdom come. And yet, our Father waits. And yet, our Father tarries. And why does he do this? Well, because he's patient. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. He's patient with this world. Our Father delays because the Lordship of Jesus in this world has not yet come to its fullness. So until Jesus does come back, we're asking that God's will would be done here on earth. This goes in line with the building of God's kingdom. We are asking for Jesus to be Lord. And the beauty of praying God's will be done is that we're not left to guess what his will is. We don't need to get into prayer circles and decipher what God's will is. We know already through God's word what it is. That we would make disciples through baptism, that we would teach the obedience of following what Jesus has taught and commanded. We would love and serve our neighbors as we love and serve ourselves. That we would seek to influence and change governments and societies for the glory of God, that men and women would bow knees and confess Jesus as Lord. I want you to think about this for a second. When you pray, if this is part of your prayers at all, Ask yourself the question, how do I contribute to the building of the kingdom of God and his will being done here on earth? How do I contribute to this? Now, I'm not talking about just activity. You can contribute through praying, praying for your neighbor, praying for people you know that have not yet met Jesus, praying for those that are suffering. How do you contribute to this? So, one aspect of lordship is that God's will would be done outside but another aspect of the lordship is that it would be done inside of us. If you don't know, now you know, because I'll tell you, you are a multifaceted person. And so we might believe in our minds that God is Lord over us, but have we submitted every part of our life to his lordship? Think about these areas of your life. Are your emotions and mind submitted to him? Is your time and calendar submitted to him? Is your wallet submitted to him? Now, what I'm not talking about is 24-7 prayer, where you just get rid of everything and your calendar's open. What I am talking about, though, is when we pray, we have a posture where our hands are open, and we say, Father, whatever you will. Now, there's a tension in that, isn't there? There's a tension between praying, hey, Father, your will be done, but also we have our own will. Also, we have this tension of, hey, my desires, they might not line up with the desires of the Father. And we see this tension displayed so beautifully in Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know if you guys remember that. Right before Jesus goes to the cross in Matthew 26, he says, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He does not want this to happen. That's not what he desires. What does he default to? 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus felt the tension you and I do when we pray to God, for God's will to be done. So this is beautiful, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, bring your heart to, G- to the Father. Tell him how you feel. Say what is on your mind and your desires. But as followers of Jesus, also recognize this. We always will default to, nevertheless, Father, your will be done. And you know what? This is not a burdensome thing to do. We already said we worship a good father. Along with that, though, we have this promise in Romans that he makes all things work to the good of his children. We can trust our father. You say even suffering? Yeah, even suffering. Psalm 119, verse 71, the psalmist says, God, it was good for me that I was afflicted so that I might know your statutes. You think of Job, right? Job is a man who suffered and lost much as he's crying out to the Father, as he's crying out to God in prayer. God's revealing himself to Job. Job concludes at the end of that book, he said, hey, I only knew of you from the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you. I want you to hear this quote from Martin Luther. I think it's a beautiful quote. It's more of a prayer. He says, Grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity, and to recognize that in this, your divine will is crucifying our will. Church, if on the other side of suffering, you are more in line with the will of the Father, that is a beautiful thing. Amen? That is what we desire. So we have finished with the requests, the petitions on this side of the Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as in heaven. We now move over to the requests about us and our neighbor. And we'll go ahead and look at those in verse 11 through 13. He says, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This first phrase, daily bread, is an interesting one. Historians, for a long time, they actually had difficulty with deciphering what daily bread meant, what the context of it was. In ancient literature, there's only two places of which the word daily is used, and it's in Matthew and Luke's gospel. It's very interesting. And it wasn't until a couple decades ago they found it, archaeologists found something that had daily bread on it. And it was actually what looked like someone's shopping list for going to the market incredibly underwhelming, right? Oh, this great word. Nah, it's not really that significant, actually. Uh, I think it's beautiful, though. Our prayer for daily bread is that we can pray the simple things of our day to the Father. And this request to the Father, it's about our daily needs, that we would have them met. Uh, Think about it as this, right? We've already, as we behold the glory of the Father, we talk about his storehouses in heaven, it's as if we're going to the Father in heaven and we're saying, Father, here's my needs. Here's my, here's my list for the day. Would you meet those needs? And we just lay it before the Father. So does that mean food? Yeah, it can mean food. Can it mean more than that than food? It absolutely can. What are your daily needs? What, is it food, finances, health? Whatever it might be for you, church, we have a father who's more than willing and able to provide for his children. And this kind of requires childlike dependence, doesn't it? A childlike faith that we would have. That we would come to our father just for the day, here's my list, 
And then we go ahead, and once that day is done, the next day, hey, Father, here's my list for the day. Would you meet my demands? Uh, not my demands. <laughs> Would you meet my needs? <laughs> we don't come in with demands. That ain't going to work out. All right. Now, some of, you, some of you go ahead and say, like, hey, I've never prayed this, and my needs have been met. Well, that is a grace from the Father that he knows what you need, even though you haven't asked him. Your Father still meets your needs, even though you haven't asked him. Now, I know this is true not only from experience for me personally. I'm sure some of you have had your needs met uh, from experience as well. But beyond that, though, I know this to be true because our greatest need has been met. What is our greatest need? Our greatest need is death. How are we going to escape death? Our Father, he provides Jesus. And what is Jesus? Jesus is our bread of life. He fulfills this prayer of daily bread. He comes from heaven down to earth so that although we might face death, it's not the end. He has provided for us eternal life with the Father. We move on from your daily bread to uh, give us this day our daily bread to forgive us our debts as we have also been forgiven as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I love the chain reaction of this prayer, and also, if you have a different translation, it might say something differently. It might not say debtors, it might say trespasses, it might say sins. Let me tell you why I like debt in that place. Um, Debt has this idea of it, especially in Scripture, where it's not like your student loans, where you can pay it back, or if you can't pay it back, sorry about you. Um, it, It has this idea of it where it is so big, so infinity, if you will, that you cannot pay it back. It, it grows and grows and grows. This is not something that you can just go ahead and, oh, I'll do a few good works, you know. I'll give an extra dollar in, the, in my tithe. I'll, I'll do something. That's not how it works. We are hopeless if we have this debt on us. Someone needs to come and remove this debt. I love the way that Paul says it to the church in Corinth. Actually, in the Second Corinthians, the, uh, the sermon series that we're in, And he says this, hey guys, remember Jesus. He who is rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. What's Jesus saying there? What's Paul saying there? Paul's saying, Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to give me your debt and I will give you the riches of a relationship with the Father in my place. It's like, yeah, that's that's a good deal. I'll go ahead and take that. We pray this father forgive us our debts we don't pray it just once and then boom we're saved we pray this continually to be reminded of what jesus has done in our place we pray this as we are creatures who do sin and sin and sin to be reminded father would you forgive me of my sins of my debt now what i love about this prayer though is that it doesn't just stop father hey forgive us of our sins awesome, and let's go ahead and leave. No, 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 there's a, there's a reaction, right? Father, would you forgive us of our debts and help us to forgive those who are indebted to us? If we have been forgiven an infinite amount for our sinning against God, how much more do we need to forgive others who have sinned a finite amount against us? I'm not saying it's insignificant if someone's hurt you or sinned against you. What I am saying, though, it doesn't compare to how great our sin is against the Father, and against the Son. I want to say this to you, church. Um, if, if you don't forgive, 
And if you live in a spirit of unforgiveness, you will have spiritual cataracts the rest of your life. Your vision will be clouded as you try to view God. You won't view him correctly. You won't be able to view others correctly. You won't even be able to view yourself correctly. I I know people like this who live not just one little root of bitterness in their heart, but it is a lush, thriving garden of bitterness due to unforgiveness. We are people who forgive. We must forgive. Another thing about this, though, is that us forgiving people of their sins, of their debts, it means that we're not about cancel culture. Cancel culture is something that's just so popular this day, right? What's it about? Well, it's about silencing and ruining anyone who has hurt us. I want them silent. I want them done. I don't want to reconcile. Church, might I remind you of who we are? We are about redemption, amen? We have failed so many times, and yet the Father continually welcomes us back. People fail continually. We allow them to come back. We are people about forgiveness. I want to share a quote with you from Corey Tenboom's book, The Hiding Place. Um, if you are not familiar with the book, she goes ahead and gives, gives her experience in the book of hiding Jews from the Nazis. Eventually, her family gets caught. They go to a concentration camp. And then her sister Betsy dies in the concentration camp from hands of brutal soldiers. And it's after they're released and after they're free that she comes in contact with one of the soldiers. And the soldier comes up to Corey Ten Boom with a hand extended and said, would you forgive me? Like, what goes through your mind with that? Would you forgive me? I want you to hear what she says. It's a longer quote. I stood there with coldness clutching at my heart, but I know that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I prayed, Jesus, help me. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and I experienced an incredible thing. The current, it started in my shoulder, and it raced down into my arms, and it sprang into my clutched hands. Then this warm reconciliation seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with my whole heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I have never known the love of God so intensely as I did in that moment. Listen to this last line, church. She says, to forgive is to set the prisoner free and to discover the prisoner was you. Church, this morning, are you a prisoner of unforgiveness? Do you have spiritual cataracts in your eyes? As God in Christ has forgiven you of your debt, let's pray as well that we would help forgive those who are indebted to us. Finally, the last one is temptation. And he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a request, and it's recognizing that we as followers of Jesus, we have a a true enemy, and that is Satan. Uh, So often in church culture, I believe that we talk so rarely about Satan as if he does not exist. No, he does exist. We have a real enemy. And this word temptation is pretty significant. Uh, It is the same word that is used in different contexts. Temptation is used in context to Satan in relation to us, and the same word is used as testing in relation for God to us. And what does that communicate? Well, it communicates this. 
Our Father uses testing to build you up, while Satan uses tempting to break you. You get that? Let me say it one more time. Your Father uses testing to build you, while Satan uses tempting to break you. So Satan, the evil one, what does he want for your life? Well, he doesn't want your daily needs met. He wants you to sit in unforgiveness. He wants you to not be dependent and confident as children to a father, but still living as if you were an orphan. And so this prayer to our Father in heaven is asking that we would be led not by Satan and his schemes, but by our Father. And as this testing comes to us from our Father, we would be found people that are faithful to our Father and approved for every good work that he might have our way. It's not in the Lord's Prayer here, church, but I want to conclude with this. Uh, why do we finish our prayers saying, in Jesus' name? Right? One, we're commanded to. It's in Scripture. So it's a good thing to obey commands um, as if you're a follower of Jesus. Um, another reason is this, though. It is a reminder to us. We come to the Father not on anything we've done. We call upon God as Father, not because of anything we've done, but because of the merits of Jesus in our place. The only reason we can pray to the Father, the only reason we can cry out to Him as children, is because of who Jesus is and what He's done for you. That's the only reason. So I love you, church. Let me go ahead and pray for us this morning.